You'd be surprised if I told you what preaching is. As the Holy Spirit hovered over the womb of the Virgin Mary, and she became pregnant and gave forth the Logos, the Word of God, that's what preaching is. The Holy Spirit hovers over His Word and uses human instrumentality and the proclaimer of the good news has to get pregnant. And preaching is giving birth to God's truth. And I'm so thankful that we have a great choir who serves as a divine obstetrician. Thank you. God bless you all. Patricia Gearing in Lincolnshire, England, lost a young daughter to a capricious disease. She had the daughter buried in a little seacoast cemetery outside of the small town in which they lived. And she put as a marker for her daughter, her young daughter, a little cross. She received a letter from the authorities and said, remove the cross. We cannot have such an overpowering symbol of Christianity in this place. So she removed the cross and negotiated and got the right to put a marker, a marker depicting Mickey Mouse. That's rather typical today, ladies and gentlemen, in that Disney's worldview surplants the Christian worldview. That's the secular world we live in England and Europe and Canada and is sweeping across our whole lands. Get God, get Christ out of everything, and especially the cross, because the cross, when the book of Corinthians was written, was called a scandalon. It was a scandal. And isn't it interesting? It was a scandal in the first century, and it's still a scandal in the 21st century. The cross of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And by the way, I understand why it was a scandal. I understand why it was a scandal then, and I understand why it's a scandal today. We have forgotten, basically, what the cross represented and how the cross was used. The cross was used by the Roman Empire. Uh, they got it from the Phoenicians because it was the most horrific, brutal, 
horrifying death you could imagine. They would take the one who was to be crucified and strip that person naked. They would whip him and whip him to the inch of his life. And then they would laugh at him, shame him, and then he would have to take in his weakened condition to pick up that cross and drag it through the city where everybody could see his shame and his embarrassment, and they'd put the cross down, and he would lie down face up on the cross, and they wouldn't drive nails. They would drive spikes in his hand and in his feet, and that cross would be lifted up, but it would drop in that slot they'd prepared, bang, and he would hang there, usually for an extended period of time, until he was dead. That's the cross. But you and I have taken the cross today and we sort of polished it. We've taken the cross today and we've got it in brass and gold and we wrap it around our necks and around our arms, our hands, and we have beautified and we have made the cross an art object. I saw only last week a a cross made out of China. Beautiful, beautiful. And we have different kinds of crosses. Jerusalem cross, the Greek cross, et cetera, et cetera. And and we've taken it and put it on top of, of our churches all over the world. The cross is that powerful symbol of Christianity. But you see, we've forgotten that because we so polished it up. For example, Let's just say for a moment that we took down any reference to the cross over our church or churches all around the world. Instead, we put up there an electric chair. Yeah. Let's put an electric chair up over the church and churches all over the world. What would people think about us? They would come and say, are those people out of their mind? They got an electric chair in a prominent place, maybe before the altar, maybe on top or in the side. And what in the world? These people, the electric chair, that's where we fry people. That's what we kill, the most heinous criminals that we have in all of our society. And they are worshiping that kind of God? <laughs> a little different, isn't it? Changes. And so we see the cross as a powerful symbol of our faith, but we've forgotten what the cross is all about. I understand it was a scandal there in Corinth. And so we open our Bibles, begin to see exactly what was going on in our Scripture. We're studying the book of 1 Corinthians. We've called it 1 Houstonians. Because Corinth in that day was a reflection of where we are today in our world and our culture. And tragically in that day, as in today, the city was influencing the church more than the church was influencing the city. And so we've got a challenge. As Christians, what do we do in our rapidly changing society in which there is an effort to, if there's any semblance of Christ and Christianity and God left in any major institution, let's rush and get that symbol out. 
Let's take out God, take out Christ, take out the cross. Man, we better do that. So how do we live in this day and age? That's a question we ask ourselves and we hear asked all the time. Do we go in isolation? We, we remove ourselves and the world and the culture all we can and we just huddle up in little happy pies corners together. Is that what we do? Or do we go out in the world and we accommodate, we compromise, we get along to go along? What do we do? Separate or become absolved in our culture. The counsel is given by Jesus in John chapter 17. Jesus said, you are in the world. Hello. But he says, you're not of the world. You're in the world, but he says, don't let the world get in you. And so we come to the cross. And the cross defines us. And we'll see the response that the Greeks or Gentiles, they're interchangeably used in our scripture. By the way, a Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. It's a Jew and everybody else. But we see how the Greeks responded, and we understand how the Greeks responded. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 18. Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the Greeks, the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. They were thinking, look, we specialize in erudition. The Greeks were a brilliant people. Athens in that day was a modern Boston, Massachusetts. It was modern Boston. It was the citadel of thinking and and advanced people. And in that day, Corinth recognized exactly what we recognize today. What gives us credibility? What gives us credential? What is the currency that we have today, you and I, right here where we live? I can tell you exactly what it is. We know what it is. It is wisdom and power. Man, if you're thought to be smart, have enough degrees, and you have insight, man, you've got wisdom. And boy, we honor wisdom, intellect, erudition, people who can articulate that, people who have moved out with with wisdom. That'll open a lot of doors if you're esteemed and thought to have worldly wisdom. Will it not? Sure it will. Sure it will. That's a part of our cash that we have. And also power. Man, you have power because you inherited it with your name. You have power because of what you have achieved. You have power, and therefore, the whole area of influence evolves around wisdom and power. Today, as it did in the first century. And so we see the Athenians there, and we see the Greeks, and they said, you mean to tell me that cross? (laughs) That cross the Romans used to crucify everybody but Romans, by the way. You know, a Roman would never be crucified, no matter what they did. That was for everybody else. That was for the run of the mill, but the Romans, no, no. And then they saw the Greeks at that cross. 
That cross. To them, it was foolishness that God, visiting this earth as the promised one, would ever die such a shameful, painful, unbelievable death of the common lowest criminal. I get that. I get that. You get that. And look how Paul elaborates on that. It's magnificent. Look here at verse 19. For it is written, he said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He said, in other words, how we think in a secular vein, he said, that's not going to operate in the area we're understanding. And then we have an interview, I think, of three people, three of the intelligentsia, three of the elite in scholarship. And this is, these are the three. Look at it. He says, where is the wise person? Huh. Who do we think of as somebody who's wise? Albert Einstein. How about old Albert? And you think he was wise enough? Brilliant, brilliant. And the question that we're going to ask all of these three, and I'm putting a name with them, not in the Bible, my name, where is the wise? The question they're asking these three, here Paul is, tell me how to know God. Okay. He said, Tell me how to know God. So where is the wise? Let's take Albert. And you go to Albert Einstein and say, Albert, man, you're a physicist. Brilliant. And Albert Einstein off the chart, the theory of relativity. So Albert, you're so smart and you're so wise. I know you followed Spinoza, another philosopher. And Spinoza said exactly what you read in Romans chapter 1. It says, look, here's all the evidence of God. Here's the created order. Here's the moon, the stars, all that's been given in nature, in natural revelation. And Paul says in Romans, you know there's a God, but you don't know God. There's plenty of evidence of that. Irrefutable natural revelation. So Einstein was in on that as he followed Spinoza. And so here he says, where is the wise? And I say, boy, here's Albert Einstein. Albert, tell us how to know God. Can you do that? A physicist. Albert Einstein, by the way, found quantum physics, invented it, and spent the rest of his life trying to prove it didn't exist, but that's for another time. But gosh, the brilliance. Okay, Albert, can you tell us how to know God? Albert says, no, I can't. Huh. And let's interview somebody else here. Look at the next little question it's asked. Well, where is the teacher of the law? Here's a teacher of the law. Let's just take Confucius. Now, Confucius was a wise teacher, not unlike the book of Proverbs, and Confucius in the Eastern world, the Oriental world, he was the authority on how to live, basic, basic principle of life. He taught the law, the principle of life. So let's go to Confucius. Confucius, my glory. How many people you've influenced? Tell us, Confucius, how to know God. Confucius would say, I can't do it. No. And then we interview someone else. And then the question is asked, 
Where is the philosopher of our age? Now we're there. Philosopher of age, who is that? Let's take it some, oh, Socrates. We go up to Sock and say, man, I, I want to ask you something. You, you are a great philosopher, and we got the soteric way of logic. You know what it is? Socrates, in his apologetics, trying to prove something, he never landed anywhere. He kept asking questions. Somebody would say this, he'd say, what about that? They'd answer that, he'd say, what about that? What about that? What about that? That's the Socratic method, is it not? Just ask questions and questions and questions and questions and never land anywhere. <laughs> never really believe anything. That's Socrates. Well, let's go to old Socrates. Socrates, look, man, we've run this by Albert Einstein. We've gone through Confucius, and these are the great, brilliant areas of study in all the world. Socrates, man, how can I know God? Socrates says, I don't have anything to say. And then we come, and we read the rest of it, and it is really powerful. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, the Einsteins, the Confucius, and the Socrates? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom does not know him. Did you get that? The world through its wisdom does not know him. That was true in the first century. It's absolutely true in the 21st century. He said, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was proclaimed to those who believe. The Greeks said, man, that cross is absolutely laughable that that's that's god visit planet <laughs> that, that's who you worship <laughs> man that's that's absurd and then the jews they looked at the cross and we see what they said and the jews demand signs and the greeks look for wisdom but we preach proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Isn't that something? The Jews said, when I look at the cross, it's weakness. That's where you'd figure it out if you were thinking logically and sensible. Somebody dying on the cross, I mean, that's, that's the weakest thing you could imagine. The Jews always want a sign. You read the Old Testament, the book of Judaism, the Torah, you read this book, and you discover there are miracles all over the place. I mean, in, in, in Genesis, man, and you go on the parting of the sea, Elijah, Elisha, the miracles they perform, and you look at the whole history of the Hebrew faith, there's miracle after miracle after miracle, and sign after sign after sign. So they look at Jesus and they say, well, this is your Messiah. He said, no, no, give me a sign. The cross is weakness. It's weakness. We can't go along with that. We, show me something. And they did this to Jesus all the way through his life, did he not? He performed miracles. He brought people back to life everywhere he went. And, and all the Jewish leaders would say, well, I missed that. I, I, I wasn't there when that happened. You know, show me something. Alakazam, boom, bang. Give me a sign to show us. Show me 
a sign. And this is what we have. Now, if the Greeks, with all of their emphasis on thinking and logic, they looked at the cross and said, that's just stupidity. And the Jews, with all of their religious tradition, they looked at the cross and said, my, 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 that is the ultimate picture of weakness. But if you have time sometime, take your Bible and look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. God is speaking, and God says very simply and gives us a very profound principle. And let me read it to you to be absolutely accurate in what he says. Isaiah 55. By the way, how many have your Bibles with you? Hold your Bible up. Bring your Bible next week. Don't come here without your sword. Used to have them in the pew, but man, we're COVID-itis, and so we don't have them there anymore. They'll be coming back. So look at what this verse says. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are my ways your ways. My ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Anybody have a problem with that? God says, the way I think is higher than the way you human beings think. And my ways, the way I'd have you to operate, and we are, they're, they're higher than your ways. And the question evidently is asked, well, Lord, what is the distance between the way we think and the way you act and the way you think? What is the distance? And God says, it's the distance from the earth all the way to heaven. How far is that? Here we have the atmosphere. We move up into the higher and higher levels. We move up and up until we get in outer space. And we say, here we are on earth. We go all the way to outer space. And let's go to the constellation Orion and go to that one star, Beltegoose. How far are you and I from Beltegoose in outer space? The atmosphere. Well, how far is that? Do you measure it in inches or feet or miles? No, no, no. It's too far. You measured it, remember, light years. You turn on a light, and that's ultimate speed. How long does it take that light to reach all the way up to the star belt? It goes, it is light years away. That's how far the way we think. And our ways are from the ways of God. Ooh, that brings us right back to the cross. Don't miss it. Don't miss it, right back to the cross. So we go to the cross, as the Greeks do. We say, man, this is foolishness. No, the Bible says the cross, for you Greeks who give yourself to mental capacities, oh, no, 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 no. That cross is not foolishness. It is the wisdom of God. We've already seen that his ways and his thoughts are above. It is his wisdom. Well, what does this mean? 
and we touched on this already. The brokenness that you and I have between God, remember? We're born not in relationship with God, but separate from God, and we're separate with God, and we can't get through God unless there is a mediator that comes in, and that's Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross was a scapegoat, remember, Yom Kippur? How the high priest would put his hand on a scapegoat, and he would list all the sins of the nation of Israel? Man, it took me a long time, didn't it? I imagine he said, somebody said, did I miss anybody's sin? Oh, no, you got me. And that scapegoat would be sent out. One goat would be killed and, and slaughtered there at the altar as a sacrifice, and that would give the sins of the high priest and his court forgiveness and those who were present. But for the rest of the nation, all the sins would be laid on the scapegoat. What is a scapegoat? It's something that takes the place of those who are guilty. Scapegoat. Years ago, I was in a stream of traffic, and everybody was flying by me. Shoom, 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 shoom. And, and, you know, I was going about the speed limit, but patrolmen came out and pulled me over. I was a scapegoat. Judge, how would you handle that case if I came before you? <laughs> and so what we have here is Jesus is a scapegoat because we can't barge into God because we're too unclean. But Jesus took all of our sin, and there was a cosmic transaction there, and he paid the price for you and me, and therefore the cross is not foolishness. It is the wisdom of God because that's how we get right with God. We couldn't go in and of our own selves. How do you add one half and one third? Do you know how to do that now? How would you add one half and one third? You got to get a common denominator. And you got three six and two six. Now you got five six. One half and one third is five six. Not going too fast for anybody, am I? That used to be in the third grade. Now it's in kindergarten. But that's what Jesus is. He is our mediator. He represents before us before God, and therefore we can talk and pray and be forgiven. That is the big word, propitiation. So we see the Greeks, oh, that's foolishness. No, it's the very power. It is the very wisdom of Almighty God. The Jews says, well, the cross is weak. We come back and the Bible says, oh, no, for you Jews looking for a sign, you think that is weakness? That cross is the very dynamite, the dunamis, the power of God. How is that? It's because when we get right with God and Jesus provides that, and that is the wisdom of God, and now, guess what? That cross is so powerful, it changes you and me from the inside. Does anybody here uh, have any problem having an appetite? Oh, I hope I'm hungry tomorrow. Anybody here say, boy, I, I sure want to be thirsty. Wouldn't that be good? I'd like to be thirsty. You see, to be hungry and to be thirsty, it's just built in us. So see, when we receive Jesus Christ, and he is in us, and a little phrase in here we'll look at next time, in Christ, when we're in Christ, he begins to change our appetites. No longer do I have to try to be a Christian. 
I talk to somebody and they say, well, pastor, I'm trying to be a Christian. I know they don't know the first thing about being a Christian, and they don't know it. They just told me they absolutely were not a Christian. You don't try to be a Christian. Christ in Christ comes in and changes you from the inside your appetites. And where there was lust, it begins to disintegrate. Where there was pride, and we say, oh, boy, let me tell you who I know, what I did. Oh, no, it begins to disintegrate. And, and all of those things that are not pleasing when we try to brag our subtle brags that we have, it begins to disintegrate because Christ changes us inside, and that is the very power of God. Nothing else has that kind of dunamis, that kind of dynamite, does it? And so we see the magnificence of the cross. All of a sudden, it's not Foolishness, it's the very wisdom of God because vertically we get right with him. Well, it, it is weakness. No, it's not weakness. It's the very power of God because that power changes us inside out. And therefore, we look at the cross. We don't say, you know, I wonder how tall that cross is. We look at the cross. We'll say, I wonder how long those arms are. We look at the cross. We'll say, I wonder how much that cross weighs. No, ladies and gentlemen, my brothers and my sisters, we look at the cross and we ask, I wonder if it's high enough to reach to heaven vertically. I wonder if those arms are long enough to include a sinner like you and like me. And I wonder if it weighs enough to do exactly what we were singing about early. It weighs enough to tip the scale of grace and mercy in my favor. The cross, stumbling block, but yet it is the very wisdom gets us right with God. It is the very horizontal ability because we're changed inside to get right with ourselves and right with the world in which we live as we become redemptive agents in the 21st century. The cross, the cross. The word goat, G-O-A-T. We know it's acrostic, greatest of all time, right? Right? Now the word goat, according to Merriam-Webster in her dictionary, his dictionary, it has now become a word. Did you know that? Recently. It met the four standards it takes for an acrostic or some other new word to be legitimized and to be in Webster's Dictionary. Goat is now a word. And now we have goats, greatest of all time. They look at every profession, every sport, everybody who's ever lived. The greatest this, the greatest that, who is the greatest of all time, and they've got a long list of a whole bunch of goats. Everybody argues about, oh, no, he's a goat here. No, that should be the goat. They look at the business world. Who's the goat? When you look it up, you'll discover that for all the arguments about who's the greatest of all time in various endeavors and various activities, the name Tom Brady comes up four to one next to anything else. That's right. Tom Brady. Tom Brady 
Backup quarterback on a freshman football team in high school didn't win a game. Backup didn't even play, didn't win a game. Mediocre high school quarterback. Played college football, had a good arm, but he was not an athlete then, and he's really not an athlete now, if you know anything about athletics. He's not an athlete, but a good arm. Somehow he was drafted, and New England got him. They had Drew Bledsoe as a quarterback, all pro. This was the year 2000. Out of all the college athletes available to be drafted and signed into pro football, out of all of them, Brady was signed the 199th person selected. Sixth round. He just got in by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin. But Drew Bledsoe gets hurt early part of the season, 2001, and Brady comes in. They win the conference. They win the Super Bowl in New Orleans. And after the game, Coach Belichick asks Brady to come. Say, Tom, come ride in the limo with me as they leave the stadium. And Brady got in there and sat down by him. And Belichick said, Tom, you played a pretty good game. That was it. <laughs> That's all he said. They just won the Super Bowl. The next year, they took a poll as to who would be the quarterback, listing a lot of different quarterbacks, and Brady was last in the opinion of the public, even after he'd taken the Super Bowl and won it. But you know a little bit about football. He's now been to six Super Bowls. He'll be in his seventh Super Bowl today. Interesting. He's married to a model that's the highest paid model in history, has beautiful children, international fame. I mean, name any base. Movie star handsome, 42 years old, but yet he's in the shape that someone would be proud of if they were 18 because he's worked, he's exercised, he's eaten properly, and he is a specimen. Make no mistake about it. Had lost a step, people think. So he was interviewed recently. And the interviewer went over all of his accomplishments. I mean, look at any base you want to cover. I mean, wisdom, power. I mean, he's got credentials and he can go anywhere, anytime, any place, anywhere on the place of the earth. Boy, this Tom Brady. Oh, goodness gracious. I mean, he's got it all. This interviewer, interviewer asked him, he said, Tom, you... You've reached the pinnacle, the pinnacle of life that few people have ever reached. What do you do now? And Brady said, you know, surely there's something more than this. There's something more than this. The interviewer said, well, like what? And Brady got a far-off look in his eye, and he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. That's something more, more than, something more than this. That more than, I would say to Tom Brady, 
It's not something or an it. That more than is a person. And I want to introduce you, Tom Brady, I would say, to that person. And that person is not any ordinary kind of person. In fact, right today, interesting enough, a Portuguese soccer player, Cristiano Ronaldo, has the second most followers in all the world. 101 million followers follow this Portuguese soccer player. Second to the number one person who has followers all over the world, who has 2.54 billion followers. Tom, I want you to meet this person. He's born in Bethlehem, backwoods town. No impressive families. He was sort of a a carpenter for a while with his dad. He became an itinerant type of proclaimer of the kingdom and truth, but, you know, it was sort of, he had no credits with Jerusalem, the, the power establisher of the day. Oh, he did put on the greatest fish fry in history. And by the way, he took, you know, two little old fish and five little pieces of loaves, and he fed 5,000 people. That, that's pretty, pretty impressive. And he has a lot of names. He's called a wonderful counselor. He's Redeemer, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, the Rose of Sharon, the Messiah. Oh, man, he's got all kinds of names. And by the way, Tom, his daddy wrote the book that's been the bestseller since the beginning of time when it was first penned. That's who his daddy is, Tom. In fact, Tom, I would say to you, I want to introduce you to, and I say this very reverently, God's goat. God's goat. And that vacancy in your life will be filled with with him and he'll change you inside and you'll not be improved or better you become a brand new person in Jesus Christ at this moment I didn't know what to say except to say that the same thing I'd say to Tom Brady, I'd say the identical same thing to that abandoned guy who spent last night under I-10 in a cardboard box, addicted and probably now mentally deranged. I'd say the same thing to him that I'd say to Tom Brady because God's goat in a life will change any life. Therefore, I wonder if we couldn't give praise to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And people who can't hear, they give praise like this. Could we do that? People who can't hear silent. Here, would everybody give praise to God like this? Would you do it? 
in the balcony, you, you got me? Would you hold your hands out and give praise to God right now? Could you do that? Some can't do that. Uh, uh, good. Just give praise to God. Praise to God. Praise to God. And now I think as we honor him, let's give him praise. A standing ovation of, pro- of praise and acclamation <laughs> to our Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ who is the wisdom and the power on this earth. 